Isn't it great to be able to assemble on the first day of the week, to do so in light of the commandments and the promises and the statements made in the Word of God, to appreciate that we're able to do those things that He has asserted that He wishes and that He pleases. And we can rest assured if we do that, that of course our worship will be pleasing in His sight. As mentioned earlier, there are several families who are vacationing or away this week, and we wish that certainly for them safe travels. And also, as Gary mentioned a moment ago, let's keep in mind that our elders have made the decision on the 26th of this month, two weeks from today. Our morning services will be as usual here at our building, but they've made the decision for the evening service that we'll be meeting with the Willow Avenue congregation. That summer series that the Willow Avenue Church is, is hosting this summer, it lasts for somewhat over two months, I believe, differing speakers at that congregation each Sunday evening. And they have extended an invitation to me to be there on the, the evening of the 26th. The particular lesson will surround wisdom. I hope you'll make plans to come and be with us on that occasion as we develop and do so in a, in a rather complete fashion the biblical teaching of wisdom. Again, that'll be two weeks from today, the evening service, the 26th of June. And remember also that they meet a half hour later than we normally do here. It'll be at, at the 6 o'clock hour. Speaking of the church, as you notice, that's the title that we'll be considering in light of our lesson this morning. And for the next few moments, let you and I take a rather impressive journey as we revisit what might well be said about the church have you ever had a conversation where someone says, speaking about this or speaking of that where perhaps that idea had been mentioned in the conversation earlier, but then when the speaking about it is made, there's an elaboration, further details, more things to be said. Don't you suppose it's true that the church, in light of the, the vast consideration of much of humanity, they have a particular viewpoint, an idea, perhaps a set of assertions that was instilled in them from an early age. But our interest today, speaking of it, let's let the New Testament have some things to say about it. As we do that, these opening remarks will, will proceed to provide you and me with at least some introductions. If I were to make statements about Misery's Bible, my wife... There are many things that might well be used, many nouns used to describe her. Wife, mother, bank employee, friend, Christian, and perhaps many other things might well be added, but for the notice of our time, many have already been asserted. All of those nouns are such that they don't contradict each other. Each one of them are facets or attributes or particular descriptions of some element of her life. I wonder if at least something like that idea might be true of the church. Is the church described by a number of different descriptive words, all of which describe in totality the features, the attributes, and the special character of the blessed body of Christ. Today we're going to look at three words, each one used to describe the church. As we look at each one of them, we will, of course, appreciate the breadth of teaching concerning that word. But we shall discover there's, of course, no contradiction. Each one describes an attribute, a facet, a powerful element, if you please, of that body. And in so doing, by the time we conclude, we will have a richer understanding, an enthralling one, 
in light of that church. Speaking of the church, as you'll notice near the bottom, the three words are going to be these. We'll begin with the word kingdom. We'll follow that with the word body. And then we'll finish it up with that word we've already used a number of times, the church. What about the word kingdom? This next slide identifies some initial considerations about that very interesting word. I suppose it's true that at least in our land, we don't employ the word kingdom near as much as some other particular citizens around the world in other countries. Other countries still abide beneath a set of governmental ideas known as a kingdom. Many of, for instance, the Saudi Arabian, Middle Eastern part of the world, sometimes those are still recognized as kingdoms. We, however, live in a different kind of governmental arrangement than that. It's not difficult to appreciate that since this word is used 342 times, and that, quite frankly, simply in the King James translation, and a rather notable 158 of them in the New Testament. It's easy to appreciate then that the presentation of the Holy Word of God is couched in an understanding that makes use of a kingdom, both Old and New Testament. It is for that reason I would ask you to quickly notice many of these references to a kingdom clearly are referring to the church. Isn't it true that there are times one can read about verses calling the kingdom of Israel under the days of David and Solomon in the Old Testament? There were also the kingdom of Assyria and the kingdom of Babylon. But the point still remains. A rather large number of those references talk about the kingdom in a way that clearly it represents the church. Let's start in Acts 8 verse number 12. There we find that as Philip the evangelist was involving himself in that wonderful set of works in the area of Samaria, it says, And when he preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, notice what was he preaching? Topics and messages about the kingdom of God. And it goes on rather quickly to affirm then that upon hearing that, many believed it. And they were baptized, both men and women. Philip was preaching about a kingdom, the beautiful kingdom of God. Look furthermore at Acts 28, verse 31. As you come near the close of that book of Acts, Paul by this point was under house arrest. And yet as individuals would come to him, Paul didn't have Acts freedom and liberty to go about preaching the way he once had done. Again, he was under house arrest. But in that very passage, he made reference to that sweet kingdom of God. Sad to say that there were many who had rejected it. Although the preaching, the message of this kingdom had been sent forth, unfortunately and very tragically, Paul said, since you've rejected it, speaking of those to whom he had addressed that day, he had turned his attention to others who would have a more fertile and receptive heart. The kingdom. What about that text in Colossians 1.13? As we open the book of Colossians, Paul addressing the church in Colossae, highlighting to them a wonderful array of blessings that they had received. They had been abundantly blessed in knowledge, the understanding of wisdom and that which had produced the various works of goodness, but all that was based on the blessings through Jesus. And verse 13 identified they'd been translated out of this location into the kingdom 
of God's dear Son. They had undergone a translation, if you please, but into what? The kingdom. One more time. We notice that, that those words were addressed to the church in Colossae, and so there this church was referred to, identified as the kingdom. Perhaps finally in Revelation 12, verse number 10, we find a presentation where, of course, the dragon is under discussion. Oh, what an enemy he is. This dragon that, in fact, was such that he was the deceiver of the whole world. He was the one who had been cast out. He was the one who, in fact, strove to array his forces against that of God. But one more time, reference to the kingdom is made. Maybe those verses have just whetted our appetite for a number of other references to the kingdom. I'm sure the one to which we each would turn almost immediately is the one that I would ask you to consider next. I suppose we would do exceedingly well to revisit a very critical statement Jesus made. He had just entered the coast of Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and following. As he came into these coasts, a question or at least an observation was made. The Lord began by asking a question, Whom do men say that I am? Now you and I know that Caesarea Philippi was a rather far distance from Jerusalem. In fact, as far as geography records it, this likely was the furthest Jesus ever traveled from Jerusalem. And yet think how close it was. Kind of amazing. And yet here he was in this location. While here he asked them, So who are people saying that I am? Their answers were impressive to say the least. Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now all of those individuals were exceedingly valuable and impressive Old Testament characters. Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist... When individuals didn't know exactly who Jesus was, they likened Him to these well-known, highly respected individuals of the past. However, the Lord then directed His attention squarely to them. After hearing what individuals were saying that He was, He said, But whom say ye that I am? A timeless, motivating, compelling question. And that comes, by the way, to every one of us today. We each must face that question. Who do you say Jesus is? Now we remember what Peter did. In his rather bold character he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice Peter didn't say Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets. In the moment of that wisdom, Peter understood the grandeur, the greatness, and the uniqueness of Jesus. He, in fact, said, you're the Christ, the promised anointed Messiah from Old Testament eras onward. That statement that Peter made was magnificent. So much so that Jesus, in reply, put it like this. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the statement you've made, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
as Jesus made those observations and those amazing statements, you'll notice He promised to build His church. And that's the word He used to describe it in verse 18. And that same organization He then referred to as a kingdom in the next verse. So the kingdom is the church. As you and I develop that more thoroughly, notice what attribute of then the church that, that identifies. What does it mean then to say that the church is a kingdom? Well, it's to say this. The word kingdom in its primary consideration gives idea as to the government, the organization, if you please, of that particular body. Therefore, that's telling us something about the government of the church, the organizational structure of it. I've tried to develop that in the following way. That again, for the consideration of our land today in our country, notice that means the church is not a democracy. It is not a republic in any form like that. Though that's the kind of government that you and I love in our land and our constitution mandates it. The church is not a democracy. Furthermore, it's not any of the other kinds of matters we find portrayed among the governments of the world either. But we do notice it's a kingdom. Look at the bottom of that slide with me. One of the sweet appreciations then about a kingdom is that there is an absolute monarch. He's called a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And thus, we appreciate that there is an absolute monarch over this empire, this kingdom. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 28, 18, didn't He? All power, all authority hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Doesn't it sound then as if there is no authority, no power that hadn't been bequeathed to Him? He said, I have all of it, both in heaven and on earth. As if that wasn't enough. What about those descriptions that we often find concerning the Master, the King, later in the New Testament? When Paul addressed Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.15, he said it like this, In describing our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. Though there are nations on earth that may have a king, notice, He is King of kings. He still reigns supreme over all of them. And the writer of Revelation, John the Revelator, also makes that observation as well. In Revelation 17, 14, as well as Revelation 19, 16, in both instances we find this majestic one riding on a great white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. He is the absolute King. No wonder in light of that we appreciate the King is such that he then has the absolute right to dictate. And so it is in the church. The laws then that you and I appreciate are enforced by nature of his being, and he's the one that has provided judgment concerning them. We've learned a great deal then about the fact the church is a kingdom. That means these things concerning it are true. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And thus, the king has given commandments. The king has given orders. He has given matters that he expects and demands to be done. In addition to that, notice Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. 
there's something about the fact you and I are going to appear before this king, and he will there appear, of course, as judge. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. The one that he raised from the dead, Jesus, is the very one who then shall serve, not as king on that day, but as judge. Finally, in John 5, 22, God the Father bequeathed all judgment to the Son. Jesus, our judge, our king. This attribute of a kingdom perhaps takes us even further. On this slide, you'll notice some additional features. I raised this earlier. I raised it, though, on this occasion to perhaps elaborate more now that our mind has perhaps more thoroughly considered this issue of a king. In our land, we are just far more comfortable with democracy. We all want to share. I want my say in determining how things are run. My friend in the church, none of us have any say. It is the God of heaven as bequeathed through His Son. He's the King. You and I bow in humble submission to Him. There is no other res proper response. What a shame then it is when the matters concerning the church, I think that my preferences ought to hold some weight. Or I think that my perspective, my viewpoint, my wishes and desires ought to hold some weight. May it never be so. Because we are not in a democracy. We're in a kingdom. The church is a kingdom. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, then we can, of course, think about the finality in the ways that some in our world today, of course, consider those issues. There are religious, religious organizations that have conferences and conventions, and they hold meetings where various and sundry matters are, are determined doctrinally. I listed one example for you on the slide. Although others might have been listed, I thought perhaps this one was an interesting one. In the year 1784, the General Conference of the Methodist Church made this decree. All men are conceived and born in sin. Thus, that was taught as doctrine, beginning at that time under the umbrella of the Methodist Church. However, in 1910... That law was repealed. It was overturned. What had been determined by them in 1784, they now decided was not correct. I want no part of an organization that behaves like a democracy as it considers the matters of truth. We have it here, and there is no democratic character concerning it. It's a kingdom. As you close that slide with me, you'll notice... How powerful it is that we subscribe to our king. Beyond the church being a kingdom, though, as we noticed early in the lesson, there was going to be another word. Let's look at it now for the next moment or two. Not only is the church a kingdom, it's also called a body. So many verses you and I perhaps can readily consider as it describes the church like this. Let's select just a few of them. By no means exhaustive. As you start with me at the top of that slide, I thought again, perhaps just the numbers alone would carry some interesting weight. 
174 times we find the word body simply in the King James Version alone. Of that number, 135 in the New Testament, and just as it was in the kingdom, many of these usages of the word body clearly refer to the church. Let's try just a few of them. Let's begin in Romans 12, verse 5. We notice there, there is one body. Paul identified then in the midst of this discussion concerning matters pertinent to the Roman congregation, one body, and the context tells us he isn't talking about the physical natural body because these spiritual individuals were members of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Amazingly, you're all baptized into one body. Clearly, he's not talking again about this physical element of flesh. This is something into which they were baptized. Beyond that, in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and then also in Colossians 1, 18, we have a trio of passages. Let's look at the Colossians one first. As Paul again opened that Colossian letter, we noted a moment ago in verse 13, he spoke about a kingdom and that they'd been translated into that kingdom. Five verses later, in verse 18, he says, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We aren't left to wonder here. He says, the body is the church. In English, that is called an apposition. It's in a positive. The latter is equivalent to the former. It identifies and is descriptive of it. And so the body is the church. That sister passage in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, "...and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all." The church is his body. The church is called a body. As you look with me on that particular slide, you'll notice this describes and discusses not the government of the church, but rather... It's organization. That thought's developed at length in a few other places. Let's consider one of them. When you and I think about then a body, we have a mental image of, of what it is because we have one. And this body consists of many members, but there's one head. One. In fact, what a serious issue it is when an unnatural thing occurs in which there's more than one head for only one body. You and I know what a terrible thing that is. Children born that way have problems. We hope for successful surgeries that can separate the particular issues of the body and the head. Often it's not as successful as we would wish. The New Testament describes there is this one head for one body. As you and I develop that, you'll notice that's this body of which we're a part because there is only one body. Ephesians 4 verse 4 tells us that's echoed in other passages like that Romans 12 verse 5 passage. One body. Though men may not be happy with the singleness of that idea, we wish for any number of bodies so that we can find the one that we prefer and God never ordained any such. There's only one. That one body, you'll notice, is highlighted before us with a perfect exhibition of unity. 
could we pause a moment and ask, what happens in the physical body when one member wars against another one? What happens when Parkinson's disease takes over? The brain behaving in a certain way, the muscles behaving in such a way in which there's not a perfect unity, you see. What happens when there's some other disease or malady in which some member wars against another one? The body is not, is not only not whole, it quite frankly rather quickly leads to death. After all, what is cancer? Cancer is that uncontrolled growth, you see, in a sense, in which what was normal and what should have been has become something else. The church is a body. There should be a complete harmony between its members, a unity, a powerful cohesiveness descriptive of its purpose in such a way that there's not disunity, there's not disharmony, there's not warring one against another. That unity is characterized by way of the church throughout the fullness of 1 Corinthians 12. On Wednesday night, we've just begun that chapter, the first couple of verses. We will, of course, look at all of that in great detail in the coming Wednesday evenings. The church is a body. In fact, aren't we told in that place that even those members that are described as somewhat more uncomely are still necessary? Doesn't you and I find ourselves in a position that the church is a body, all of us are needed. We all have talents and work we can do, and shame on us. If we, due to our own exaltation of self or selfishness, choose to not behave in a, uni in a united fashion and carry out those duties, the church is a body. That organization brings us to come to this one as well. I thought we'd close our lesson with that third word, bringing together the kingdom and the body and revisiting this word church. Six letters, C-H-U-R-C-H. Church. Our society, of course, for hundreds of years has adopted and utilized that term and it has come to mean many things in a secular way. Our interest is only how is it defined in the Bible. What is the church as the Bible defines it? The kingdom? The body? Let's speak about this word itself. In the same way, we started those other two sections. Look at something about the word itself. Quite frankly, this word ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, when, when you and I are reading through the New Testament, if we were able to read Greek, that original language in which the Bible, the New Testament was presented, every time we encounter the word church, we would encounter this word ecclesia. Well, what does ecclesia mean? Well, what about the original usage of that word? Isn't it a fantastic thing to appreciate that the human family in the first century used that word to describe an assembly of people? Sometimes they were assembled for a military purpose. Sometimes they were assembled for a governmental purpose. Sometimes they were assembled for some other particular purpose of humanity. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, He coined a very special usage of that word and applied it to His people, those assembled in service in absolute commitment to Him. 
And that's, of course, the way in which over the centuries the word has been primarily utilized. Today, the word church, or at least the underlying word, you don't use it to refer to a military group. You don't use it to refer to a government group. We use it to refer to those who are called out because that's what Jesus did. That word ecclesia, it literally means those called out. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, I'll build my church. I'm going to build a group of those called out. Called out of what? The world. Called into where? Into covenant relationship with God through me. So the church is those called out of the world and placed in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the church. That ecclesia. Aren't you and I thankful to be able to be a part of it? We, as Christians, then, are those in that group, those assembled and called out. You'll notice on that slide, this attribute of the church, then, is different than kingdom. It's different than body. One talked about the organization. One talked about the government. This one talks about relationship to God. It specifies those who are living in covenant, living in compact, living in proper relationship with God, the church. I would ask you to notice, there at the bottom, of course, that eliminates many particulars and many ideas. Isn't it true? The church isn't in the business of compromise with the world. We've been called out of it. The furthest thing from our minds should be then to take worship and somehow make it to what the world wants. Well, that's what we're called out of. Right? And as far as individual lives, we can't hope to please God if we're living like the world. James 4 verse 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I can't live drinking, sexual immorality, I can't live in dishonesty and lying and deception and deceit. That's what the world perhaps upholds. I can't please God living that way. He tells me that in His Word. And if I want to be a part of that group, the called out, I've got to leave that behind. You can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's no such thing as fence straddling when it comes to the church, is there? I can't have a foot in the world and a foot in the church and think that somehow that'll be enough to scrape by and make it to heaven. The church is a kingdom. The church is the body. The church is the church. As we close that slide, you'll notice then that our discussion today has brought us to some of these concluding remarks. On this slide, by way of conclusion... In highlighting the kingdom, in highlighting the body, in highlighting the church, we've been reminded of the sweetness, the impressiveness, the uniqueness and the powerfulness that surround the topic of the church. Perhaps in the mind of many, the church is a watered-down idea. It's just a group of people that they meet every now and then, but I'm as good as they are. That isn't so. Remember what we've just learned? Church's kingdom, its body, 
It is that group called out of the world into a covenant relationship with God, and it's that group that Jesus testified are the very ones, as He revealed through Paul, that will be handed over to the Father on that great judgment day. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. So if we're not in that group, in that assembly, in that body, we're not saved. Ephesians 5.23 teaches us that today. Are you faithfully a part of the church? Have you obeyed the gospel initially? You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Those are the Lord's entrance requirements. If you haven't attended to those today, let today be the day. If you have, however, but you haven't been faithful in an assembly, maybe you've walked out of it. Maybe you've turned your back upon it. As long as there's still breath in your lungs and sentience in your mind, you can come back to your first love. Humble yourself enough, if it's public, to come down this aisle today. Request that we pray to God on your behalf as you repent and confess those things. He's promised to forgive you and reinstate you to faithfulness in that body. Today, if we could help you in either of those ways, don't delay. Life's too short. Eternity's awfully long. If we can help you, why not come now while we stand and sing?